So as I said, it's Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 1 through to verse number 13, and I'll just read the section. So verse 1, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus or Joshua had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also had ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us, la- let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now that's the section, and as you can see, some of the language is a little bit obscure on first reading. And there are Old Testament quotes in there that we're going to have to look at to see the context of this section. Now, this is the second uh, part of a warning section that ran from chapter 3, verse 7, uh, right down to the end of verse 13 of chapter 4. So if you go back into chapter 3, and just to get the flow of thought, remember we're seeing the superiority of Christ These Christians have got a Jewish background and they're being persecuted and the reality of their professed faith is being demonstrated in the heat of persecution. And those who've come to Christ, not genuinely, but attracted to him without living faith, are being demonstrated by the persecution as to not having that living faith. And they're drifting back and going back into Judaism. And here in the first uh, few chapters, we we saw that the writer to the Hebrew is encouraging the whole group to look to the Lord Jesus, to be satisfied in the Lord Jesus. He's far superior than all the left behind in Judaism. And we saw he's superior to angels. He is the sevenfold superiority in the first few verses. And then you've got his superiority to angels. And then you've got his superiority to Moses and so forth. And he is just far greater than all they left behind. And he doesn't just give information after information after information, but he punctuates all of this information with warning sections, and this is one of them. And so we see that out of this flows what we've read in chapter 4, verse 1 to 13, and out of the end of chapter 3, in verse number 12, for example, he says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And we saw last time that he's not saying that you could be saved and then you could be lost, that you could be born again and then somehow go to being not a Christian. 
It's not to be saved and lost, but rather this. He says, you need to take heed, you need to be careful, lest you're not saved at all. And in you is still this evil heart of unbelief, and that's not true of any Christian. And so he's challenging them, he's warning them, and in verse 14 he says this, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. And again, verses 18 to verse 19, And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And he draws from the experience of Israel and those who died in the wilderness, who had all the appearance of faith, but actually were marked by unbelief and demonstrated that unbelief in the refusal to go into Canaan. He draws out of that Old Testament picture and illustration. Now, the main point of the section that we're in And the first few verses are quite difficult to work down, but the main point is in verse 1. Now, the ESV translation puts it this way. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, there's that crucial expression, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, we'll work our way down this and pick it apart so we see what he's saying. But his point is simply this. Don't fail to reach the rest that remains. There still is a rest that is being offered. Make sure that you don't fall short of that. Make sure you're not one of the people, like the example in the Old Testament, who falls in the wilderness and doesn't go into the rest. That's the picture. So there is a rest that remains today. And we ought to make sure that we possess that, enjoy it, and will in a future day enjoy it in all his fullness. So he's got a picture in mind. And it's the picture of the children of Israel going through the wilderness, brought out of Egypt by the mighty acts of God, brought across the Red Sea and dry ground, brought through the wilderness and all the many miracles that they saw, poised to enter the promised land, but actually most of them perished in the wilderness most of them through unbelief and basically he's saying this this is a big idea i don't want you to be like them i don't want you to fail to enter the rest of god that's offered to you in the way that they failed to enter the rest of god that was offered to them that's the warning so let's go into the verse and and let's just see what he says in verse one let us therefore fear And you'll have heard me often enough to know the wherefores and the therefores are so important in the authorised verses. Why I like to still use it as a study um, tool because you have these crucial connecting words, wherefore and therefore. And here it is, therefore. And so he's, he's flowing out his argument. It flows from what has gone before. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, you need to fear. Now that is the word from which we get phobia from. It means to be frightened or to be alarmed. So his conclusion from the example of Israel is this, that they were not able to enter unbelief, because of their unbelief they were not able to enter rest. He says that ought to have an impact upon you when you read about it and think about it. And the impact is fear. You ought to be afraid. It ought to be something that would cause you to be alarmed. That there would be a possibility that that could be me. 
And it may never have crossed your mind that it could be you. But it's in the scripture because there were some who were, in all intents and purposes and really externally, indistinguishable from the Christians. And they had come along, it seemed, in the same journey, but they weren't marked by living faith. And so he challenges them and he says this, let us fear lest a promise left us. Now we are going to get into some of the kind of grammar of this, so bear with me. This is what they call the present passive. Okay, so it's the present tense and it's passive. It's nice of Andrew to join us from retail. From the present tense and it's passive. Now the passive voice is different from the active voice. Passive is when something is done to you. Active is when you do it yourself. That's the difference between the two. So passive is when something is done and you experience that. Active is when you make it happen yourself. So passive is usually done by someone else and impacting you. So the present tense in the passive means this. Let us fear, lest a promise which has continually been caused to remain. So I am not causing this to remain myself, but it is a constant, it is present. It is not a point tense like the aorist, but it's a present tense which is running on. So what is present and what is passive is this promise of rest. Now, when he speaks about rest in this passage, and if you look up commentaries, you will be bamboozled. So many writers write so many different things about this. And it took me quite a bit of time to try and unpick this this week when I was looking at it. But I came to this conclusion that when the writer is describing the rest available to Israel in the Old Testament, he is primarily referring to what they would experience in the land of Canaan. So it was not simply material, but within the land of Canaan, as they went in there, they would experience God's rest. It was a spiritual thing too, but it would be a spiritual thing enjoyed within the geography of that promised land. So it's not just that they would go in, become citizens of Canaan, and that was it. It was that they would go into Canaan and there enjoy the presence of God in that land that God had promised them. So there was the spiritual aspect to it as well. But that also would be enjoyed within a geographical location. So, for example, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 27, and the spies go in to spy out the land, and they say, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it flows with milk and honey, and so on. So the land itself was part of the rest, but it wasn't the totality of the rest. There was a spiritual aspect to it. Now, when you come into the New Testament, the rest that's promised to us is a rest of life in Christ. So it's not now life in a geographical location. It is life in Christ that that geographical location, the Old Testament, was a picture of. So Canaan was a picture, not so much of heaven, but all the blessings we enjoy when we are in Christ, when we are saved. And Ephesians chapter 1, you're blessed with Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. So as we experience the blessings, the spiritual blessings in Christ, then we enjoy the rest of God for us. Now, if you just keep these two main concepts in your mind, 
Colossians 2 verse 3 speaks of Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now the majority decision not to go into the land was evidence we've seen of unbelief and disobedience on the part of the Israelites. Any decision not to be in Christ after hearing the gospel, to be saved, to experience the blessings that you see experienced when you're in Christ, that decision is also a decision of unbelief and disobedience. It's the same problem. And faith was required on the part of the Israelites to go into the land for they had never been there before. All they had was the promise of God. And there were so many enemies. It was a step of faith and they failed. To go into Christ and enjoy the blessings of being saved is also a step of faith. And you see the two parallels that flow through the Old and the New Testament. So he says in verse 1, let us therefore fear. Make sure that you're in Christ. Make sure that you're saved. Make sure that you're characterized by faith. Because the alternative is this, that while the promise is left of entering into his rest, and while that promise is not made by us and it's not sustained by us, it's passive. In other words, we can experience it and it's held open also in the present tense for us. While we have that opportunity, while the rest is offered, he says, you be careful and fear. Be alarmed, lest you fall short of it. Now that expression to fall short is the same expression that you have in Romans 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's the same expression. Now when you think about the experience of these Jewish Christians or Christians with a Jewish background. Remember this that the persecuted Jews, Jewish Christians, had... The whole Old Testament to reflect upon. They had an expectation of their Messiah. They're looking for freedom. They're looking for, for the reign of Christ. They're not looking for persecution. They're not looking for all the trouble that they've experienced. They're taught to believe, actually, that tribulation on earth is a mark of God's displeasure, not blessing. So this is counterintuitive. This is the exact opposite from their expectation. It's no wonder that they were really being tested have we taken the right step? Is this the right direction? Is this really the blessing of God? Because it looks very different from the Old Testament type of blessing. In the Old Testament, it was material prosperity. When they were walking with God, there was peace in the land and all this kind of thing. And righteousness reign. When they're walking with God in the New Testament, there's chaos in their experience. So it's counterintuitive. They're finding it hard to believe that this is the rest of God in this New Testament context. Now in verse number two, he's going to speak about us and them. Us and them. Now the pronouns are important in the verse. Who are the us and who are the them? The us refers to the first testament, first century Christians, the New Testament Christians, and to us today. And the them refers to the children of Israel which came out of Egypt. So us and them. So this is going to connect us this is the common point of connection between these two concepts that I've been trying to speak about. Where do they intersect? Where's the synergy between this Old Testament context of geography, of blessing within the geography, of faith to go in, of unbelief that kept them out, and of experiencing the rest of God in that national geographical sense? 
And this concept of the spiritual blessings in Christ, that's the location, so to speak, uh, and the need for faith and unbelief keeping you from it. Where's the synergy between these two? It's verse number two. So he joins us and them together. And the word for is the explanatory causal connection. That's what brings the explanation of what these two concepts have got in common in verse number one. So verse number two, for, he says, unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Here's the common point. And the common point between the two is just this, that they received good news, they're over here, they received good news and we received good news. Okay, so that's the common point. Now, what good news did they hear and what good news have we heard? Well, the good news which was announced to the first century Christians is the same good news that we hear in our modern day. It's the gospel. It's of spiritual rest and spiritual blessings in Christ. The need for faith. The need to repent. That's the gospel we hear. It's the gospel they heard. But what about the children of Israel? What good news did they hear? Well, the good news that came to that generation which came out of Egypt was of that rest that lay ahead of them, that spiritual connection as a result of redemption, that need to trust their God, that need to depend upon him to lead them through the wilderness, that need to depend upon God for what they had never seen, a bit like Abraham coming out of the Chaldees. So they both hear news. We hear news, they hear news. They also heard news which was very similar to us in the Old Testament. They also heard things like the just shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament quote. Genesis 15 verse 6, Abram believed and the Lord credits to him righteousness. That's all quoted in the New Testament as being applicable in principle to us. So there's real connections between the two. They would actually come into their blessings on the same principle that we would come into ours, same principle of faith. One writer said this, I think it was Woost, the announcing of the good news of Canaan to the generation which came out of Egypt and the proclamation of the good news of a spiritual rest in Christ to the first, first century generation was so thoroughly done that the memory of these messages was indelibly impressed in the minds of their respective hearers. There was therefore no excuse possible that the message had not been clearly and forcibly delivered in both instances. It will not surprise you to know this, that the participle is in the passive voice. It's the same. The literal rendering is this. For we have in times past been completely evangelised with the present result that the message of good news is in our minds even as it was in theirs. So the message was delivered, but in such a way, according to verse number two, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. The kind of grammar of that statement is that it was preached completely. It was preached so that it remained with them as it remains with us. Israel knew that faith was required to get into Canaan. They journeyed to Canaan by faith they needed to enter it by faith, but in verse 2, notice this, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Mixed together. So to unite one thing to another. 
Thayer says this, The word heard did not profit them because it had not united itself by faith to them that heard. I.e., because the hearers had not by their faith let it find its way into their minds and make it their own. So faith was the problem. Faith or lack of it was the reason they didn't enter in. Faith or lack of it is the reason that we would not enter it in our New Testament connection. So there is, the, there is, the, there is the, where the two things come together. Now just keep with me, follow this through as we go down these verses. So in verse number three, he has the word for again, for we which have believed do enter into rest. Now that is just the statement of what he's proved in verse two. So that we entered in, they entered in, and we entered in because of faith. Faith is the key. You see, God's means of blessing mankind has not changed from Genesis and will not right through to Revelation. Faith is the key. And the word of God is critical to the exercise of faith. So the word was preached to them, but it didn't profit them. Why did it not profit them? Because of the lack of faith. But the word was still preached. And we're going to see that the word is critical right down here. So let's just follow it. Let's grind it down through these verses. For, in verse 3, we which have believed. So as Christians, we are characterised by faith. Then he's got an Old Testament quotation, and it's awkward in the AV. It should perhaps better read, As I have sworn in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. So here's your Old Testament declaration by God for these Children of Israel, they will not enter in. And it was a statement of God's wrath because of their unbelief and disobedience. Remember the, remember the, the spies, they came back with the report and the people of Israel basically said, look, we're not going in there, no chance. And then they decided, oh, we better go after all. And, and God was angry with them and judged them and sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. Now, he then makes a quotation here in verse 3, so he says it's consistent with God's judgment upon a lack of faith. Then he says, at the end of verse 3, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now this is where it seems to get a bit tricky. Let me try and explain this. The writer is now taking them way back. Right back to Genesis. Right back to creation. And he's going to demonstrate that this whole principle of God resting and us enjoying his rest goes way back to the beginning. Right even before Cain. So he begins to direct our attention back to God's creation work and the principle that can be seen and was established from the beginning of time. So he says the works were finished from the foundation of the earth. God worked and then he rested. That was back in creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. And it's not unique, therefore, at any specific stage of God's dealings with men, that God will complete his work and he will enter his rest and invite men to join him in that rest. So he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and verse 4. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So this is Genesis 2, 2. So you remember God works for six days. He creates and he creates and he creates and he creates and he speaks the world and the universe into being. Six days. He made the heavens and the earth and everything within them. And then he rested the seventh day. Now why did he rest? 
because his works were finished. They were complete. They were very good. There was nothing to be added. God was satisfied. God could now rest and invite man to enjoy him within that rest that he had created. And so he walks with Adam in the cool of the day. He's enjoying fellowship with man in the absolute bliss of the rest, which is the fruit of his work, which is now complete. So after six days, God creates this environment. And it was a geographical environment in that context. And he creates man to enjoy it with him. And it seems fantastic. It's restful, it's peaceful. God is sovereign. There's joy, there's fellowship, there's love. There's all of that within the rest of God in Genesis, right at the beginning. God's purpose is to create rest and invite people to to enjoy it with him. Now that rest was disturbed by sin. Sin came in, disturbed the rest of God. Now God's got to start working again. Can man enjoy that type of rest with God again? Well, actually the answer is yes. And so the writer to the Hebrews not only quotes Genesis 2 verse 2, but in verse number 5 he quotes in Psalm 95 again. Now I'm not going to go back over that because we looked at that extensively in the last chapter, Psalm 95. It's the key psalm for both of these chapters. So God rests after his creation work. Man enjoys it, but breaks it because of sin. Can that rest be enjoyed again? Well, actually, God is now working. He's brought a a sacrificial system for the people of Israel. What's the purpose of that? So that God can dwell amongst his people again. So God creates the tabernacle, ultimately the temple. He creates a sacrificial system and he's creating conditions on earth that enables his presence to be known amongst his people and he now invites his people to enjoy that rest with him based on sacrifice. And he's going to take his people into a promised land which is a picture of the ultimate rest he wants. Well, of course... They can't even enjoy that as a result of unbelief and rebellion and a lack of faith. And so Israel in the wilderness failed, just like Adam in the garden failed to enjoy God's rest. And so the question is raised, well, well, can man enjoy the rest of God again? Well, the answer is yes. Because ultimately God takes them back into the land and they get into the land. And the instruction to Joshua is, go into the land, conquer the land, and again God will dwell with you in this land. And here's the second go at it. Well, what happens? They don't conquer the land. They don't exercise faith. They make all sorts of treaties and deals and compromises. And they don't purge the land of those they should have. And so the land is never as it should have And it's not the ultimate rest. And so they forfeit that again. You see this constant pattern? And so you come down to verse 6 and verse number 7. And you're getting a quote from David now. King David. So you're, you're away on, he's the man that wrote Psalm 95. So the people are in the promised land, but they're still not enjoying the rest of God. They're still not. They've now got a king after God's own heart. 
but they're still not enjoying God's rest. And so long after they've entered the promised land, the people of God haven't, hasn't dawned on them that the rest is more than simply possession of territory. The rest is, is enjoying that territory in a relationship with God, and that's the thing they're missing. And even in the days of David, they're missing it. So it says in verse 6 and 7, Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter in, that is the rest of God, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, today after so long a time. So God is still offering rest. Still the opportunity is there. After so long a time, and you're only at Psalm 95. And so 500 years after his offer of rest to the generation under Moses, he's still offering that rest. But it's accompanied by a warning. That the people should not harden their hearts because that day when the rest is offered has now been limited. This is the first time you read this. This is, this is a limitation now. It's a warning. And the warning is after so long a time, God limits a certain day. We call it in our day the day of grace. There's a limitation on this offer of rest. As there was stated in the days of David and of course they didn't heed that and they get taken out of the land and they couldn't even enjoy the geography of the land never mind the relationship of God within it so then you come down and, and just follow this down so that he says for if Joshua had given them rest i.e. if all the rest of God was entrance into that location then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day so there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God there still remains the offer of rest. And that rest is still open today. Now you see the importance of this to these New Testament Christians with a Jewish background who had been brought up to believe that possession of the land was the be-all and end-all of everything. That's still, by the way, what the Jew thinks today. And not realising that possession of the land was part of the blessing, still is for the nation, but it's more than that. The enjoyment of God within that locality, within that geography. And so here's the summary of this section. And this is the foundation of God's message for us today. God is still offering rest. Not that Old Testament rest to that nation which is peculiar to them. And in a day to come, God will, of course, fulfill his promise. Because the sin of man cannot thwart the ultimate uh, purpose of God. And God will create that millennial reign of Christ upon earth with Israel having those special blessing, covenant blessings enjoyed in their fullness. God never breaks his promise. God always fulfills his promise. Don't spiritualize these promises of the Old Testament. They will be fulfilled as they were made. And so he says here, God's offering still a rest. There remains therefore a rest the people of God. Now that, I recognise, we're now down to verse 10, that's quite tortuous in terms of, of thought flow, and hopefully you've been able to stay with me through that. But if you can grab the common threads that run through these uh, verses, and see the kind of big picture, uh, and, and detail will, will, will kind of uh, come round about that, as long as you can get the sort of big picture of it. So you say, okay, we've got this got this Old Testament, this New Testament, the importance of faith to go in, the, the faith response to the word preached on both occasions, 
Uh, unbelief and rebellion keeps you out of the rest of God. The rest of God was to be enjoyed within that geography of Canaan for the Old Testament people, but within Christ in the New Testament spiritual sphere, the two, the two things being separate. So what's the basic character of rest then? So I've used that without defining it. Now, if you take a rest, and there's quite a few of you of student age here, and when you take a rest, it's like death. You know, it's like resurrection is required as opposed to anything else. And rest means, I think, when you take a rest, absolute inactivity. You might breathe, but that's it. Just flat out, nothing. Like, nothing's been done. Nothing's been thought. It's just, it's just that flat but that is perhaps our idea of rest. But it's not the biblical idea of rest. God never switches off. Never. When he enjoys his rest, it's not inactivity. Remember even in the Garden of Eden. He comes down to where man is and he walks with Adam in the cool of the day. He's going to enjoy that relationship with Adam within the sphere that he has created, this environment he has created, which is conducive to the enjoyment of that relationship with man, which, by the way, speaks about our eternal reality. That's what it's going to be. God is, God is another environment that he's created for us to enjoy Christ and to be with Christ for all eternity. And it's an environment that our imagination cannot begin to conceive of. I mean, that's another whole thing, but, you know, we, we think about eternity in relation to our experience of Earth. So we think of it in three dimensions. We don't even know if there will be three dimensions in eternity. There might be four. We just don't know what the fourth would be. And, and you think about, you know, our relationship with the Lord. We've, we've just no way of conceptualising that at all. But what is rest? Well, verse 10 tells us about the rest of God. He that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now, when you think about this in terms of, of God and creation, what is God doing in the six days of creation? He is creating the environment in which he will enjoy his relationship with man. When that is disturbed, God's got to work again. That's why, by the way, the Lord Jesus said when he was here, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Well, what is the father doing? And what is the Lord doing? Why are they working? I thought they had rested. But now they're working. It's the work of redemption. And the Lord was here working to accomplish what? The environment in which we could enjoy a relationship with God. Now, if we enter into God's rest, we stop from any work to create such an environment. We stop. So important. We stop trying to be right with God. We stop working to be right with God. This is not labour for the Lord that we just down tools and don't serve the Lord anymore. This is us working to enter into the rest of God. We stop that. The work's all been done. That's what faith's all about. God has done the work. And so he says, he that has entered into his rest, he has ceased from his own works. God has ceased from the work of redemption. It's done, it's finished, it's complete, not required. 
So entering into that rest, and that is the Sabbath rest, actually, which the Sabbath day pictures, a whole other subject, but the Sabbath pictures that eternal rest, which is why the Sabbath, that day is not linked with Israel and the law. It's actually way back to creation. The, The observance of it was for Israel upon earth, and it was specified and so on. But actually, the concept of rest goes way back to creation. So God promises that his rest is spiritual, it's not physical. And mind you, I better encouragement to these saints because I think it would be true to say that some people who you come across who experience the greatest amount and enjoyment of the rest of God in their life right now are some of the most hardworking, non-passive people that you can come across. People who are busy, people who are active, people who are energetic, people who are switched on and not switched off to spiritual things. So this Sabbath rest is ceasing from all our labours. Come unto me, the Lord said, all ye that there is, labour and are heavy laden. He said, you're trying to labour, don't. It's done. Come to me. Enter into rest. Stop the labouring. Stop the working. Enter into the rest of God. And it's promised for us. And that's a lot. And then we come to verses that are perhaps a bit simpler. Verse 12 and verse 13. Remember this, that I mentioned faith and the importance of the word preached in relation to faith. Now the flow of thought is just this. The word did not profit them because they didn't believe it. They heard good news, they chose not to believe it. The good news, I've gone over many times in the last wee while, and they said, no, we're not believing it, we refuse to, we refuse. God said, go in, and they said, we're not going in. Disobedience. So the word of God is key to faith, and faith is key to the rest of God, to a link. New Testament says, you can quote it surely, faith comes by Hearing and hearing the word of God. You can't separate them. Right. So, if that be the case then, he's going to tell us about this word of God in verse number 12 and 13. And he's going to show that the word of God is the true determiner, is the key issue that will demonstrate whether I have it or not. And it won't demonstrate it to other people, but it will demonstrate it to ourselves. It's the word of God. So he says about the word of God, and remember, this is all about hearing. The whole epistle is about hearing. It's a big point. And I pointed that out the other day. The warnings are all about hearing. If the word's spoken by angels, you know, the salvation, how should we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by that and that heard him. It's all about speaking and hearing. So what is the character of God's word? This is so crucial in relation to knowing inside me that I have salvation. It's the word of God that will inform me. He says the word of God is quick. Now that's an old-fashioned word here in the authorised version. It means alive. It actually means actively alive. 
and as the tense indicates, constantly, actively alive. It's living. So when you have in your hand the Bible, this is not a manuscript of something that's past, dead, irrelevant. The Word of God is living. Now that is why, by the way, you teach a Bible verse to someone in Sunday school and 50 years later, the Spirit of God is able to resurrect that in their mind and they can quote it again. Why is that? Because the Word of God is seed that doesn't die. It's alive. It doesn't die. So that's the difference between telling something from yourself, like some anecdote or story, and delivering the Word of God. One is dead and one's alive. One is life-giving. The other is not. So the word of God is alive, it's powerful. And that's the word from which we get energy from, energizing. So it's living, it's energizing, it's sharper, it's incisive, it penetrates, it lays bare self-delusion. It absolutely tells you the truth. It exposes to your conscience what is real and what is not real. It's the word of God for it says here, it pierces. It means it just cuts right through the rubbish. And it actually uses this analogy that it can pierce right through the whole body down to the very heart. So it doesn't mean that it divides asunder soul and spirit. It doesn't mean that it can tell the difference between the soul and spirit. I've heard that said so often. You know, the word of God divides asunder the soul and the spirit. No, it doesn't. The word of God penetrates right through the soul and the spirit. Right through and joint and marrow because I didn't know this but I read that joint and marrow aren't connected anyway. So it's not showing that they're disconnected. It just means that it cuts through like a knife through butter, right through all these things. So the word of God penetrates right down to the very innermost parts of my being. Vincent said this, the form of the expression is poetical, signifies that the word penetrates to the inmost recesses of our spiritual being like a sword cutting through the joints and marrow of the body. Separation is not of one part from another, but operates in each department of the spiritual nature. In other words, the sword just slices through all the rubbish of our life. That's what the Bible does. See, sometimes when you read the Bible, it's just like God speaks to you through his word, and it's just like a hot knife right down to your conscience, and you're gripped. Actually gripped. That's what happens when people get saved, by the way. It's good seed that goes right down. Where does the seed go? Right down into the soil. And the Spirit of God is able to take his word and he's able to like grab you by the scruff of the neck, so to speak. And that's the same for Christians. How often have you read the Bible casually and there's something that's just caught your eye or your attention and, and suddenly you felt really convicted about something or you've had something open up to you that you've never dawned on you before. It's just, it's just different from reading anything else. For he says here in verse number 13, so at the end of verse number 12, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now that word discerner means to sift out and analyse evidence. So the word of God can penetrate into the furthermost recesses of my spiritual being and it sifts out and it analyzes, it contextualizes the thoughts and intents of my heart. It is the only true barometer of where I am spiritually. It's the only one. 
hymns, sorry, testimonies, fine, you know, preaching, great, all that kind of stuff. Actually, it's the scriptures. It's the reading of the word. It is that which tells you where you are. It's that which educates, illuminates, challenges. It's the word of God. For he confirms this in verse 13 and says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. So there's a flip there. So my heart is laid bare to me. But actually my heart by the word of God is laid bare to God. Completely manifest. So the word of God is like a light, it's like a lamp and so on. And all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So you might kid most people most of the time, but you will not deceive the Lord any of the time. Any of the time. I cannot deceive God ever. Ever. So that the life I may, this is an application really, not really in context, but the life that I may create which is the externals, which is the um, reputation and all the rest of it, the life I build, that structure all around me, right around me, and the more you live, the bigger the structure. That structure does not shield my essence from the eyes of God, does it? He sees right through it, right through it. So this is a very challenging section. He's challenging those Christians to fear. To consider it something that would alarm you. If you read this and you were convicted actually, I haven't actually trusted the Lord as my saviour. I'm not actually enjoying the rest of God. I'm not enjoying anything. I'm not, I'm not actually enjoying the blessings am I in Christ at all you know we shy away from that lest we sow seeds of doubt in the minds of some but we shy away to such an extent it's hardly ever challenged and yet to be honest you know Christians I know Christians and when you look at their life there's no evidence of life and they should be alarmed lest there be in them an evil heart of unbelief it's too serious to get it wrong. So here in this section, we, we've thought a little about rest. That, by the way, is one of the toughest sections in Scripture to, to come to an understanding of, as far as I'm aware. And you've kind of stuck with me right down through that, and it's not easy. So I trust that will be a help and a blessing as we try and see these big concepts within this section, because it's critical as you move through this epistle to get these ideas embedded in your thinking. And we trust that God will bless us uh, as we've thought about these things. Let's just pray.